Dr. Carolyn Waters Bro has spent years researching and writing about the classical composers. She has published in many music journals and wrote her dissertation on the music of Arizona composer Louise Leakin Kerr. Bro is a principal violist of the Scottsdale Philharmonic and the founding conductor of the Four Seasons Orchestra in Arizona. Having taught music in colleges and public K-12 schools, she now teaches violin, viola, cello, and piano at her private studio. Caroline Waters Bro, welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me, Mia. And before, I just want to dive in so that uh, listeners can to hear, hear your music, but to, to, you know, you're a conductor, you're a musician yourself, uh, you're a writer, and you have written so many biographies. Uh, but we'll, we'll go into that, but just to, to give listeners uh, a taste uh, of your music, uh, t- tell us a little bit about this piece that you've selected. Uh, I do a lot of mentoring As a conductor, I try to help young people to aspire to their careers in music and to get um, a boost. And that's part of the Four Seasons Orchestra's mission with our young artists concerts to give uh, young solo artists their first opportunity to perform with a professional orchestra at a young age, even as young as 11, 12, into their teens, and uh, help them to get that chance to solo in front of an orchestra that will lead to more opportunities later on in life. And this, and, yes, that's no, that's so important. As you say, it's just the having the, the having being able to perform because having the audience having those believe in you and seeing your talents and strengths I mean at that crucial age and this piece that we're about to listen to I believe the performer Belle Wang I was 15 at the time yeah So that's it's just so powerful, and just to also imagine the age of the the performer and the other performers. I don't know all of them. 
It was absolutely amazing. You would think that she had performed many times with an orchestra, but this was her first time. And then later on, the next year, 2016, she got a chance to perform with the Chandler Symphony. Later on, she won the Phoenix Youth Symphony Concerto Competition and performed the Sibelius Violin Concerto with the Phoenix Symphony. You, you sort of need to have that progression of successes in order to make it in the solo world. I, I can imagine either the diligence, the strength, the discipline, all, I mean, it's a tough world. As I hear from some of my friends who are um, musicians and composers. Well, these are exceptional young people and young artists. They dedicate their lives towards music. They practice for many hours a day and they take from uh, great solo artists who can teach them how to become solo artists. And I'm so fascinated with the feats of memory. I, I, to, get, to get to that point where you must be deeply concentrating and yet almost forgetting because you have to go at such a pace. It's not an act of memory anymore. It's you, right? Well, exactly. The, the body has to uh, remember. And if you can train the motor memory, it doesn't have to go to the brain. The fingers remember. And sometimes I will look down at my hands and they're going so fast that I'm, I think, how can I do that? How can the human body do that? But we can. And you're moving your hands at different speeds at the same time, you've got to be able to do the dynamics with the left hand and the, the, the timing with the right hand. And so that takes a lot of skill to do that. If you don't relax your shoulders, they're going to ache, freeze up. And sometimes you're in the middle of a concert and you have to go through that point. If, if you get trouble with your arms or your shoulders, you have to keep going. And so you can't tense up. And that's the same thing with the violin or the viola. If you tense up the right hand, the left hand will tense up as well because there's a connecting tendon in the neck. So you have to relax both. And that's the key when you're performing is not to allow any tension to take over the body. I almost feel in, you know, in, in artistry in, in general, it's that moment where you have, it seems effortless. You, you make it seem effortless. It almost, it's almost like, and then that's the point of real artistry because of course it has been an accumulation of years and you know, it's just so much life or it's like a, a bird who is flying, but they can, as you said, you cannot stop 
they, if they stop to think they will fall out of the sky <laughs> and, and and you as a conductor everything depends on you you they will fall out of the sky <laughs> if you don't so you must work beyond all that and it's just it's just beautiful how it all comes together and the accumulation of your collective uh, intelligence and talent i don't want to go back to something that you said when you are watching and it must be so fascinating you're watching your hand moving and you can't believe it can move so quickly almost like it's someone something else and 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 it reminded me of and you said it does, doesn't have to go through the brain like it doesn't it can bypass that and it reminded me of this program I saw and I've, I've forgotten his name now but there was a man he I, I think he had a, an, an accident I think he was a possibly also a conductor but I think he was a musician a pianist and he lost all of his his memory just was all it was wiped like the, he couldn't remember two beyond two seconds he could had no memory but he could oh. play and you've 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 seen you've heard of some of these instances and that's exactly what you're saying it bypasses the brain he had no memory he doesn't know what town he doesn't know his wife he doesn't know anything remember anything but he plays he's a maestro oh there are are parts of the brain that are used by the, the auditory nerves that are different from speaking. And that's why when some people have a stroke or Alzheimer's, that they can still actually sing sometimes and recognize music that they heard when they were in their teens, they, but they can't speak because it's a different part of the brain. And so it's fortunate that he could perform even though his memory had been affected. That, that's gotta be that motor memory kicking in that is not the same as uh, his memory function. It's autonomic nervous system kicking in and taking over for him. It's amazing. Tr truly, and, and it also speaks to, I mean, you, he's communicating through the music, which we know is such a deep form of communication. And it just makes me feel for those, the, the healing power of music and the arts, the, the, the ability to communicate across countries, across language, you know, and still understand each other. I just, yes, it's, it's, it's truly a gift. Well, the human um, hand has the ability to do 160 different motions. And that's why people can do sign language, for example. And we can do it very quickly. And you can train your hands and your fingers to move extremely rapidly. But it, it takes time and dedication like these young solo artists, they're repeating certain passages many times and running them through different rhythmic and bowing patterns so that it becomes part of the autonomic nervous system. It, it's internalized and then they can't make a mistake because it's like second nature to them. And speaking of which, we're about to listen to another one of uh, your young performers, Rina Kabata. And uh, just before that, I just did want to say, 
it's it's so interesting you're talking about passing things on you know what one generation to the next and I just think about the maturity of the sounds and the emotions accessed it has to be something about that accessing what is contained in the music because almost you would think someone of these uh, the artists of these ages wouldn't be able to have that I don't want to say that but you know it takes a, it takes a lifetime to get some of these emotions right um, you would think so Mia you would think how can a 15 year old have that type of maturity but like I said these are exceptional young people they go to art museums they study all kinds of philosophy. They, they love the classical genres and, you know, they're very well-rounded. They also are very good at mathematics and history. And so they bring all of this into their music. They study the composers. And so their maturity level is much higher at a younger age than most people. And here Rina is playing, just tell us a little bit about the piece. Rina Kubata won our competition, our Mozart and Friends competition in 2017. She was 15 years old at the time and uh, she performed the first movement of Mozart's G major concerto number three. And she did perform it with so much maturity at a young age, which was very surprising to the judges. And she performed in front of the orchestra just beautifully and perfectly. And there were large cameras fixed on her close up, but she didn't miss a beat. And I think it's because she had started studying violin at such a young age, and then had performed in a lot of competitions for years before entering our competition. And so she had a lot of backing and training and help from her teachers in order to get to that high point at such a young age. Well, it's very beautiful, so let's just listen.
it must be so it makes you just you're so I want to say lucky because you have studied and worked so hard but it, it must be lovely to really live in a world where you're just going back uh, through time yes we're recreating the music and the mood of Austria and Mozart and everything that he went through to develop and achieve the greatness I just, I'm, it is interesting that question, what is genius and what is the price of genius when you have these great gifts and we've seen it in, 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 you know, different artists, it's like, you feel like, oh, it comes easily to me almost, or it comes easier to these very gifted people than it might to, to others. And so they, they just have to keep on giving it, but it does, it can exhaust. Yes. Well, there, there is the possibility of a musical gene, which might be passed on through family members. Certainly Mozart's father was a musician and Bach's family had a, a lot of, a long line of musicians before him. Beethoven's father and grandfather were musicians. So there may be that musical gene but there's a whole lot of training that has to go into the genius. And Mozart's sister, Maria Anna Mozart, she was a little bit older than him. And it was her learning how to play the keyboard when he was a baby that excited Mozart to learn to also play music. And she wrote little pieces for him. And uh, Mozart's father, Leopold, wrote uh, music for him. And so at the age of three, he was already playing thirds on the keyboard. You know, it was that exposure. And he was bouncing off of her genius. He wanted to be like her. And most people don't talk about that type of influence. How do we get a genius? Leopold Mozart was writing his treatise on the violin while Wolfgang Mozart was in the womb. And he posed the question of nurture versus nature. Nature being that genetic genes coming down and nurture being the teaching, the environment, the opportunity to create a genius. And so Leopold wanted to prove this thesis before Mozart was even born. And Leopold was a teacher, violin teacher, and a conductor and a composer. He had a mission to create a genius, but he created two with Nannerl Mozart and uh, Wolfgang Mozart. He had two musical geniuses. And how could that happen in one family? So there must have been some nature and nurture both in order to create two of the greatest musicians and composers in Europe at the time. 
Yeah, it's it's fascinating how that happens. It's just a single. It's as you say. It actually it's a it's a, a community or at least a very strong teachers. You've I've, uh, someone pointed out to me. You we've seen um, in periods of time where we've seen where it seems like. Why is it that this, in this period of time, there seem to have been so many geniuses, or let us say, at least extremely, you know, talented pockets of musicians and happening in certain regions? And it comes down to there were some, there, there were some very gifted teachers allowing them to give them that start. Definitely having the advantage of a great teacher. They have secrets which they pass on to the student, and they may never write those secrets down. I've had one teacher that said, "You may never write this down. You may only pass this on to your students." Because, for example, the Russians with the Tchaikovsky Violin Concerto Competition. They used secrets, sort of like the chess masters had secrets, which helped them to win the Tchaikovsky violin competition. And so there's that higher training, which is so valuable to the student. And I try to pass on things to my students so that they have an advantage. In life and and as a professional musician, things which will give them greater flexibility, greater tone, rapid fingers, greater intonation, and and there are ways that the teacher can help. But I do feel that there once in a generation there will be somebody born who has. That higher ability already, and you you think, gosh, were they a musician in their past life? How did they get to be so talented? And they're they're just a child. How can they understand all of these things at such a young age? And I think it's either a, a gift or it could be from a past life. My name is Amy Epps, a senior at Brigham Young University, an associate interdisciplinary humanities editor and podcaster for the creative process. Music has played a major part in my life ever since I was a little girl, as my sisters and I would often sing together around a piano and formed our own string trio. I have always admired professional musicians for their skills and passion for music. And Carolyn Waters Bro is an exceptional musician, who not only inspires me due to her talent, but also her mentorship. What struck me about her was that her Four Seasons Orchestra highlights young musicians, and has them perform with a professional orchestra, and often for the first time. Carolyn Waters Bro is an incredible example for these young musicians. And especially for young female musicians, my minor is global women's studies, so I love learning about inspirational women who dedicate themselves to help other women and girls discover their talents and to use their voice. Her devotion to help young people 
and particularly young women musicians, such as Rina Kubata and Bill Wang, reminds me of Vivaldi himself, who taught orphan girls and women music at the Ospedale de la Pieta. Vivaldi used his passion and skill with music to help empower young women to learn a new skill in an area which was extensively dominated by men. He believed that these girls and young women at the Pieta were worth investing in, and that young musicians can have just the amount of passion and talent for music as any adult. Carolyn Waters Bro's mission to give young solo musicians an opportunity to perform with a professional orchestra is a reflection of Vivaldi's work, and I know she is an incredible example to many young musicians, and especially young women musicians, as they can see that one day they can become a professional musician like Carolyn Waters Bro too. It is very fascinating, and and going now to your the other composers that you feature in your book. How did you go about choosing them? And just tell us a little bit about the organizing principle and really some very fascinating stories there. Well, of course, Antonio Vivaldi is the namesake of the Four Seasons Orchestra of Scottsdale, and he was a great violin master actually the greatest in Europe. He was in a competition with a Bavarian violinist, and he won. Vivaldi's father was also a violinist and uh, possibly a composer, we're not sure. And they performed at the cathedral at St. Mark's in Venice. It was the Republic of Venezia at the time, and Having this strong church background, that's where the professional musicians were employed. At the time, you were either employed by the church or the court. In Venice, they had doges, and Vivaldi was assigned to become a priest at a young age. And so because of his asthma from birth, he was not able to say the mass, which could be four hours long. And as a priest, you sort of need to do that. So they assigned him to become the violin teacher at an orphanage for girls in Venice. It was at the Pieta, the hospital for abandoned girls. There were you know, about a thousand girls at the school but only those who practiced their instrument very hard got to be in the exclusive orchestra of about 40 girls and women at the orphanage. And Vivaldi trained them and, and wrote a lot of his concertos. He wrote 700 violin concertos and other string concertos, symphonias. He was training the girls on their instruments. And Vivaldi's orchestra became the greatest orchestra in all of Europe. There were, like I said, 40 girls and women. And sometimes when Vivaldi was 
off touring Europe and going to Bavaria. There would be a young nun who would get up there and conduct with a baton. And, and so these women were the greatest musicians in Europe and kings and nobles would come from all over Europe just to hear Vivaldi's orchestra of girls. It's wonderful to hear that because I've always, and I, I can imagine even now, I, it's, I always imagine it being in some ways an, an old boys club. I can imagine for also, yes, <laughs> I mean, not so. It it, it it's wonderful to, to hear these stories and some of the the other uh, wonderful composers that you've written about. Uh, I think that you have it's half and half. You have a selection of male and and female composers. So just tell us about. And and I also want you to share what it for, share with us what it's like to be a woman and a composer to, or a conductor. I mean. Well, the 50 famous composers for kids of all ages came about when I was teaching at a classically based school and music was an academic at that school. And so I was giving them a history lesson, a 45 minute history lesson every week and a theory lesson and, and uh, singing and violin classes. And I noticed that the book report that they were supposed to be doing, they had a list of composers, but they were all male. And of course, going through undergraduate and uh, master's degree, there were zero women composers in the history textbooks, the university textbooks, not one single woman composer. And I took a class at Arizona State University from Dr. Madeline Williams on the women composers back in the 90s. And of course, it was all new. Women Research on women composers was very fresh and new in the 90s. We were just learning about Hildegard of Bingham. We were just starting to learn about Clara Schumann and Fanny Mendelssohn Hensel back in the 90s. And for me to discover that there were 16,000 women composed, both historical and living, my jaw must have dropped about a foot. I wanted to bring this knowledge to the young people that I was teaching at this uh, school. And so I decided to do an experiment and I added uh, about 20 female composers to the list of the 20 male composers to their book report just to see if they would choose the women composers and write about them. And they had to give a little speech too and make a poster about the composer that they had chosen. So. There were several young ladies, and they're like nine and 10 years old, even as young as seven, who chose the female composers to do their report on. And I felt like this empowered these young ladies to see music in a totally different way because they can place themselves into the lives of those lady composers and aspire towards becoming a composer. 
And there, there was a lot of discrimination about women composers, as well as women writers and women painters, you know, back in the 19th century, especially in the early 20th century, even late in the game, the, the turn of the 20th century, women were not allowed to take conducting classes or composing classes because the men said they were too fragile to have a creative idea like the men did. So ironically, World War II comes along and all the men go off to war and they needed the women in the professional orchestras because the men were gone. And suddenly you had to have a conductor for those all-female orchestras back in the 1940s. So women conductors came along at the same time. And this was probably not just the US, it was probably all over the world. Women were getting opportunities that they had never had before. And the, the unions allowed women to become professional musicians finally, not just playing in salons. A lot of the stigmas of women performing on a stage were dropped before they had been, oh, if you're performing on a stage, you're not a fine lady. That's not for you. Ladies do not do that. Ladies don't play a trumpet. It's bad for your facial expression. So all these stigmas were starting to die off, but it took time. So it's this first generation of women conductors back in the 40s. And I met up with one, her name was Frida Belenfante. And she had been a resistance, a Belgian resistance fighter in World War II. And I'll tell you, Mrs. Belenfante was as tough as nails. And I was 12 years old when I worked with her in a youth symphony in California. And I had this idea at a young age, well, there's a woman conductor right there. And she was the conductor of the Orange County Philharmonic Orchestra where I lived. And so at a young age, I didn't have that idea of women can't be conductors because I had worked with a professional woman conductor. But I did see some of the stigma even into the 70s, 80s, and 90s about women conductors and how they were treated by some of the musicians. They were not treated well. There was a, a lot of competition going on. I became a conductor mostly out of necessity. I had hired a conductor to conduct the Four Seasons Orchestra in the early years back in um, 92. And he became very ill and had to go into surgery one week before an all Mozart concert. It was a bicentennial of, of Mozart's passing away. 
and there were worldwide concerts of Mozart's music. I had to pick up the scores, pick up the baton, and conduct the entire concert with one week of notice. And that's how I became a conductor, was through necessity. And then the bassoonist with the Four Seasons Orchestra came up to me and he kissed my hand and he said, you must continue to conduct. What do you think are the qualities or the necessary attributes? Because you didn't, as you say, came to the fore out of a necessity. You almost didn't know you. I mean, obviously, you're taking in all these things from your musical experience. But what have you found over the years that they're really kind of essential elements that you need to have to be a successful and longstanding conductor? Oh, certainly having the training. I was fortunate to work with John Koshak and Zerat and Bernstein, Hogwood, Blomstedt, Seiji Ozawa. These people left a lasting influence on me as a conductor because I memorized their conducting patterns and how they conducted and the energy that they were expressing through their conducting. And each one of these conductors was a little bit different. I also worked with Meili Mehta, who was the father of Zubin Mehta. And Meili Mehta had a lot of energy and he conducted everything by memory. And there was like sparks flying out when he conducted. And so the, the motion, Blomstedt told us as conductors, it all has to come from the baton. You're not supposed to, you know, talk it out and tell everybody how to play. You're supposed to communicate it non-verbally through the expression of your hands and your motions and the beat pattern. And so you take that energy that the composer put into the music and you channel it through the baton. And I, not only did I study conducting from great conductors, but I also studied Tai Chi in the 80s. And I immediately saw the applications that were possible and so I developed the idea of the energy bow. And of course, we do slow motion sometimes as a training. Slow bows, just like a flute player, would do uh, long tones. And so you have this, the cloud hands moving the bow. And you transfer this chi, this energy from the center of your body into your hands and into the bow and that produces an amazing tone and the, the expression and the nuances, it all goes through the bow. So when I became a conductor, I decided that I would have the energy baton. And so the energy would channel from the center 
through the baton all the way out to the musicians and to the audience. And when I went to Tanglewood in Massachusetts to study conducting with Seiji Ozawa, everybody was very excited. And I, I had never seen his feet before in videos. I had only seen the upper body when he was conducting. And when I saw his feet, he was wearing the little Chinese shoes, even though he's Japanese. And I go, is he doing Tai Chi on the podium? And one of the other conductors said, yes, we're all getting videos of Tai Chi so we can learn what it's all about. And there I thought I had invented the energy baton, but the master, the maestro Seiji Ozawa was way ahead of me with the San Francisco Symphony. And he was using all kinds of Tai Chi to channel that energy through the baton long ago. And so if we can talk a moment about energy, when I conduct, I'm conveying the energy of the, the music to the musicians, but all the audience. And the audience loves the energy. That's what they're there for. That's what they brings the emotion out in them. If you can channel that energy to the audience, then they can feel the expression and the excitement that's already there in the music. But also as musicians and as a conductor, we're bouncing off of the audience too. If they are excited if they love music and they are feeling the energy and feeling the emotion, then that transfers back. It's this exchange of energy which creates the live concert, which you can't get in an audio recording. And, and that's kind of the, the goal is to grab the heartstrings of the audience and pull and bring them into that experience and share that with the audience. And I think also the drama of it and watching you, it's also, it's, yes, it's an energy that we don't think about how it operates on us. We feel it in our body. We, it comes through our ears, also comes through our eyes too. And to see you're like a focal point of all of this music and that is also powerful for people because some people some people's have educated ears but some people are have a stronger visual sense and that helps them that you're translating it almost maybe and the better you are at interpreting that emotion that the composer put into their music, the better you're going to be able to convey it to the audience if you understand it. And getting back to what you were saying about maturity, Mia, some musicians achieve that at a younger age than other musicians. And it depends on if they have a broad radio band of emotions to begin with. And if they're able to control those emotions and channel them. Some musicians might just become technicians 
and other musicians become artists. And so it's all about that inner maturity and can you find it and can you develop it and bring it to the audience. And that's what I try to do as a teacher and a mentor of young artists is to help them to get beyond the technical and get to the expression and, and get the tools that they're gonna need to be a great musician. But it, it has to come from them too. They have to want it. And as a professional musician and an artist, you have to want it more than anything in your life. You have to eat, sleep, and breathe music in order to become a great musician. And so people have to, to decide, and only they can decide, that they want to dedicate their lives towards music. I think, yes, it's, it's so... Well, it's a joy, though. We have to admit it's, it's a joy, but it, it takes work. And before you were, I don't want to um, leave behind because you were talking about the importance of hearing or knowing there's a space for young women or they know that there have been there's this long lineage of female composers and before we started this conversation you were telling me a little bit about Elizabeth Claude Jacques de la Guerre and the story she's such a fascinating character I want to hear some of those because we had jumped into the conversation. Elizabeth was a prodigy she was a harpsichord prodigy who was born into a family of harpsichord makers who were brilliant harpsichordists in Paris, France. And Jacquet was noticed at the age of five by King Louis XIV, uh, the Sun King. He brought her into his court. He decided that she should be mentored and he had her mentored by one of the court ladies. He got her the best teachers and she had a, a great advantage at a young age, but she could already play as a, a virtuoso harpsichordist at the age of five. So became one of Louis XIV's main composers. Of course, there was Lully was there as well. There were, you know, many court composers, but she was composing opera. She brought the Italian trio sonata to France and wrote some of the first trio sonatas. She composed ballets and ballet is of course French. And some of the very early ballets were written by Jacquet. So she wrote in every genre that was available in France at the time. And then later on, when Louis XIV decided that he was going to move all of his court members to Versailles, which he had just completed building. That was, you know, outside of Paris at the time. Of course, it's right in the middle of Paris now. 
It's now the Louvre. But at the time had lost her husband and her son probably to the plague. She wanted to stay in Paris. And when he asked her to come with him to Versailles, she said no to the king, which is quite astonishing that she had that kind of power to say no and stayed in Paris. And she had little salons of her music in Paris. She continued her music, but outside of the court. And that was a very brave thing for her to do. And, and most court musicians could never get away with that. So she was very, very highly regarded by the king. And after she passed away, he uh, struck battle with her image uh, in her honor. So there's a, a medal for Elizabeth Jacquet de la Guerre, minted by the king. And I just want to listen just so we have this is. And as you say, this was the kind of music that you would have heard in, even though she did not go to Versailles, the kind of music they might have performed in Versailles. And for me, it's kind of, you know, it's my backyard where her family were instrument makers. It's like a few streets away from me. I'm past it every day. I didn't realize this history behind it. So it it's, uh, adds a, another layer of discovery. So imagine it's in my backyard, but I'm being told about it by... A, a, a conductor uh, and musician from Arizona. Well, most people don't know about Elizabeth Jacquet, but as you can hear, her music is magnificent. It's elegant. And, you know, that was the height of the, the French court. So I think as you think back, you know, in terms of what the arts have given you, what music has given you and taught you and contributed to your life and what you like, you know, young musicians, but just young people or general audiences to know, preserve and remember as you think about the future. You know, what are some of the things you, you have learned and would like them to know? You were talking about joy, Mia, and music has been a great joy for me. It's hard to describe being on stage with an entire orchestra. 85 people are all playing the same music together. And when it's right, when all of the music comes together, it's as if there's this light that's formed between the musicians and this joy. And it's almost as if you can look up and, and touch heaven or, or touch the divine. 
at that moment, and it, it doesn't always happen. It's not every day, but once in a while you get this feeling of great uh, joy. You're ecstatic, like you won the lottery or something, that, that you can be a part of making this music together. It's amazing. It's an amazing feeling that you can't get from turning on a radio or putting a, a CD into the machine. It's something that you're producing yourself and with other people. And, and that is a great joy to me. And I wanted to pass this on as a legacy to other musicians, to the next generation, through the young artists' concerts and, and through my book, and to help educate both young and adult audiences in the values of classical music. And I hope that through the stories that I tell about the composers, that these composers will come alive for the people who are reading about the musicians or hearing the music that we're performing. And how can I experience art and music in every possible way that I can? And bring that joy into my life and teach that to other people and help them to experience the love and the joy of classical music and the creative process. Well, you certainly have, and we've certainly heard it. I, I mean, I wish it was, for me now, a live experience. I know we've all postponed some of those live experiences in the last year, but I, I certainly find it inspiring speaking to you, and I have no doubt through your many with many young musicians who, who you fostered over the years, you know, oh, something to your nurturing spirit and mentorship. So I want to thank you, Carolyn Waters-Bro, for inviting uh, us into your imaginative world, sharing your process and stories about music, what you do to uh, inspire young artists and nurture their talent. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thank you so much, Mia, for inviting me to be part of the creative process. I really appreciate the opportunity and I love what you're doing to help others to enjoy the creative process. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer on this podcast was Amy Epps. Digital Media Coordinator is Hannah Story Brown. The music was provided by the Four Seasons Orchestra with Carolyn Waters Bro conducting.